Jodcast with Roy Smith, Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, October Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. Now, as you have noticed, there is no Dave with us this issue because he is currently in India. Also, Stuart is in Trieste. Roy is in Australia. So joining me this issue is Ian Morrison. Hi, Ian. Hello to you, Nick. And now, so thank you very much to everybody who has been downloading the Jodcast and listening to us and sending us uh, your feedback. And uh, thanks to Joe Jones and there's Daniel Scott Jordan. And, of course, any comments, feedback, questions, just go to www.jodcast.net. Well, as at Jodrell Bank, they've been having some fun building up some relatively simple kit to observe meteor trails. How does it work? Well, essentially, we have an aerial on the roof of our control building that's picking up sometimes signals from a television transmitter in Spain. Now, normally, of course, signals from a transmitter in Spain wouldn't be received in the UK. But if a meteor comes roughly halfway between us, high in the sky, then it causes a trail of ionization. The energy from little dust particle that comes into the atmosphere splits electrons off the atoms, and then you get what are called ions. You get a plasma, which is why we can see at night it's, it's quite hot. But those free electrons, when the signal from the radio TV transmitter reaches them, vibrate in sympathy and reflect those signals forwards so our receiver at Jodrell Bank can pick them up. So we get a little ping each time a meteor comes into the atmosphere roughly halfway between Jodrell and, uh, and Spain. Now, in fact, Roy Smits is going to interview Eddie Blackhurst, who was the technician at Jodrell Bank, who actually put the equipment together, and he and Megan Argo, I'm sure you remember Egg Megan, they basically got the whole system going to very great effect. I'm standing outside of Jodrell Bank, where there's an antenna attached to the roof. And it doesn't look like it, but apparently this is a meteor detector. So I'll go inside and talk to Eddie Blackhurst, who is a receiver technician, and he might be able to explain to me how this works. It really just looks like a normal antenna. Hello, Eddie. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Hi, Roy. Yeah, no problem. I was just outside looking at the meteor detector. And can you maybe explain how this works? Yeah, sure. It's a very, very simple system. Um, what we're looking for is um, reflections off meteors from distant transmitters which are located over the horizon. So we can't pick them up by normal means. They have to be reflected off the meteors. And the system comprises of a very simple dipole tuned to the frequency of the transmitter. Uh, the transmitter being located somewhere in Europe for our, our application. We then have a simple filter arrangement and amplifier and then just just use a, an ordinary scanning receiver which is capable of receiving single sideband signals and then when we have a meteor ionized we hear a tone in the audio from the receiver effectively and that tone is then fed into a piece of software which then analyzes the change in pitch effectively and it's that that you see displayed on the Jodrell website. So you mentioned the emitter is somewhere in Europe but what kind of emitter is that? Um, we believe it's actually a TV transmitter, um, one of the old low-frequency transmitters of the type that we used to have many years ago in the UK, running at 48 and a quarter megahertz. So 
there's a television antenna broadcasting somewhere in Europe, and you're picking up the reflections of that antenna due to the tail of the meteorites. Yes, effectively. I mean, obviously we can't see the transmitter line of sight because the horizon's in the way. But the waste energy, if you like, from the transmitter, um, obviously some of it goes out towards space and into space. Um, but when the meteors ionize, the, the plasma generated in the form of the tail re reflect the radio waves and we can actually detect them. Can we have a look at the website? Yeah, sure. So here we go. Here we have the website now. So what we see here is a big graph, two-dimensional graph, and on the x-axis is the last five minutes, that's time. On the y-axis is frequency, and the colors, they represent meteors? Yes, you can see that predominantly most of the page um, just has random noise, which is, is shown up in, in light blue. Where we get a meteor burning up and the tone that we detect, um, you can actually see that represented by a white uh, dot or a line uh, as the tail disperses and stops reflecting. So on the Jodlebank website, you people can see live meteors. Live meteors, yes. That is fantastic. We'll most certainly put a link on the Jodcast website directly to your meteor detector. So can you explain to me what exactly is a meteor? A meteor generally is just um, a grain of dust, effectively, which... Uh, gets dragged into the Earth's atmosphere by, by gravity. It enters at extremely high velocity and uh, burns up in the upper atmosphere. Do these meteors sometimes hit the Earth? Occasionally. Um, most of the meteorites that actually land, if you like, um, end up in the oceans, unfortunately, for us meteor fans. Generally, the ones that do fall are, are pretty small, though, and are really... <laughs> must indicate to people that they really shouldn't be worried about uh, big meteor impacts. So how did you come up with the idea of building a meteor detector? Well, it, it, it all really stems to uh, one of my, my, my old colleagues, Megan Argo, who... That's our Megan Argo from the Jodcast. Our Megan Argo, the, the legendary Megan Argo from the Jodcast. <laughs> Megan wanted to commemorate the 50th, 50th anniversary of the Lovell Telescope uh, last year by setting up a meteor detector some of the early experiments that Sir Bernard Lovell did when he came to this site at Jodlebank after the war in the late 1940s were research into to meteors, effectively, uh, using radar techniques. And we thought it was a good idea, perhaps, to set a system up to, to commemorate this. I did the, the radio side of the experiment, and, and Megan did the, uh, the computing side, and we, we set a nice little system up, as can be seen. So I see you brought a few meteors... Yes, we, we have a, a few examples here in front of us, Roy, which uh, I've, I've collected over the years. I've got two very nice examples of uh, a meteor which fell many, many years ago. I think it was prehistoric times, perhaps, um, called the Gibeon meteor, meteorite, which landed in Namibia in South Africa. It's a, a Nicolaian meteor, a meteorite, extremely heavy for their size, as you might imagine. Uh, with a black fusion crust, which is quite uh, quite typical of Nicolaian meteorites. So when a meteor lands on the Earth and it leaves a little residue, that is called a meteorite. Yes, that's that's correct. Only only the cinder, if you like, that lands on Earth is is the meteorite. Otherwise, it's just a meteor, and that's what you see. So these objects have actually travelled probably many many millions of kilometers through space before they hit the Earth. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, these probably were formed uh, from the cores of stars as well, so they've been around for a considerably long time. They are absolutely incredible when, when, you, uh, when you look at them. So why do you collect these? What fascinates you about them? I, I think it all stems from being a, a young child years ago, asking my parents about, uh, always reading books on astronomy, and asking my parents about uh, meteors and meteorites and being fascinated by them. And I'll never forget the buzz of actually seeing my very first meteor, and, and that, that I was just bitten by the bug there and then, really. So this meteor detector, does it also have any scientific value? Yes, very, very possibly. One thing that we are doing with it, and there is actually a link off the Meteor webpage, if you look along the tabs on the left-hand side of the page, uh, we're actually involved in counting meteors, and our data is actually displayed on this website. It's, if you look at the tab, it's called Meteor Observatories Around the World, and uh, a collection of amateurs are uploading the data to this website, the counting data, and uh, th that could be used for statistical purposes. Would it be helpful to have more of these antennas? Absolutely. I mean, this would be a really good project for, for schools and private individuals to take up. And indeed, perhaps we will consider putting some instructions on the website at some point on, on how to set the system up. So schools could go to the website and find out how to build their own meteor detector? Yes, I think, I think eventually we'll, we'll put the information on and, uh, and let people have a go and... And perhaps we can get you know people as enthused as I am about meteors. <laughs> so I understand you also have recording of some audio of this meteor detector. Can we listen to that? We we, we do we do Roy. And here we have a recording taken um, several years ago um, for the Leonid meteor storm that we had. Here you will hear a tone, which is actually one of the meteors um, ionizing. So if, if if you have a listen to this. That was a big one. Yeah, that was a reasonable size one. <laughs> okay, so not only can we see meteors, we can even hear them. That's beautiful. Yeah, you can hear them too. And that the tone is generated by the receiver, but it's due to the the carrier being picked up reflected off the meteor effectively. Mm -hmm. It's that tone that we've just heard that the software we're using generates or, or utilizes. What is your software based on? What, what software do you use for the meteor detector? Okay, um, the software is actually uh, freely available to download from the internet. Uh, it's an audio spectrum analyzer package uh, written for amateur radio applications and it's called Spectrum Lab. So would you mind if people contacted you if they're interested in this? Yeah, sure. I mean, that would be fine, Roy. Um, I mean, it'd be good to, to gauge the amount of interest that people have in setting a system up like this for themselves. And, uh, and perhaps uh, if the interest is sufficient, then, you know, we can, uh, we can help people get involved in doing it for themselves. We'll put your contact details on the website of the Jotcast. Okay, yeah, sure. That will be fine. Thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure, Roy. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Roy. Now, we've had a number of questions sent in from various listeners over the last couple of weeks. So, without any further ado, here is Dr. Tim O'Brien answering your questions with Ask an Astronomer. 
Thank you very much again for coming along and answering people's questions. No problem. First question is from Stephen Harper, and he writes, uh, Getting started with astronomy, help required. Uh, it's a, he finds it as, it's an excellent show, fascinating and really informative. Thank you very much for that. Now, he's just bought a telescope, and he's started learning to enjoy the night sky with his two children. They are fascinated by the moon. How and what should I go on to show them next? Any advice gratefully received? Well, this is a this is a great question, of course, and um, the moon is superb through a telescope. And in fact, I've sort of I've often talked to people about what are the best things to look at through a telescope when you first get one. Um, and certainly, looking at the moon is is, is a thing to do. Um, I mean, it feels like you're um, you're flying above the surface of the moon. You sort of scan across the you know you're flying above the craters. You can see incredible details of the mountains and the craters and so on. And actually, one of the uh, good things if, you, if you're looking at the moon is to choose a time when the phase of the moon is such that it's not like a completely full moon. You might think that full moon would be the, you know, when it's when the, the surface pouncing towards us is fully lit, would be the best time to look at it. Um, but in fact, you're better off looking at one of the phases where maybe you've got a sort of half moon or something. And then to look down what we call the terminator, which is the, 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 sh- the point which is where the moon goes from being lit to being in shadow. It's that sort of boundary line between the dark part of the moon and the, and the lit part of the moon. Because you see shadows, the, the light's sort of coming from the side, and you get a really good 3D effect. When it's illuminated from the front, and so the whole surface of the moon is lit, the full moon, then you lose a lot of the depth information mm. that you otherwise get. So certainly next time, make sure you do look at the moon when you, in, in that sort of phase, sort of half half moon, you know, or a, 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 a waxing or waning phase. Um, in terms of what to go on and show them next, then, um, then I would say um, that with a telescope or, or binoculars, Jupiter is the classic. I mean, you know, look at the planet Jupiter, find the planet Jupiter, download one of these um, packages that we've talked about a number of times before, like Stellarium or Carte du Ciel or something that will tell you where where and when to look for Jupiter. Um, but looking at Jupiter through a small telescope or, or even a pair of binoculars, you should be able to see the, first of all, you should be able to see the moons of Jupiter. So four of the biggest moons of Jupiter, the so-called Galilean satellites. So these will look like um points of light like stars effectively on on sort of usually spread in a sort of line more or less horizontally across a sort of an angle across jupiter maybe one on one side three on the other maybe two on one side two on the other maybe you maybe one of them will be missing because it's either behind or in, in front of jupiter and you won't notice it they're called the Galilean satellites because Galileo saw them. And, and interestingly enough, it's the, it's the International Year of Astronomy next year. Uh, it's 400 years uh, since Galileo first pointed a telescope with Jupiter and saw those moons. So, if nothing else, during the year 2009, look at Jupiter's moons and think of Galileo. <laughs> um, the other thing, on Jupiter itself, um, look for the cloud bands. Um, you should be able to see through a telescope, you should be able to see these bands of different colours running across... Through a small telescope, they probably look sort of darker brown, lighter brown, whitish coloured. Um, these are these cloud bands that you see in the gorgeous sort of Hubble Space Telescope pictures of Jupiter. You can see them through a small telescope. Lovely to be able to to see that. Even the Great Red Spot would can, can be can be seen. This is this big rotating storm in the atmosphere of Jupiter. That can be seen through a small telescope. Um, Saturn's rings, uh, again, a, amazing sight. You know, I've, I've shown many people. Saturn through a, a small telescope and, and they're always completely gobsmacked if you, if you understand that turn of phrase um, uh, when they look at Saturn and you can see that it really does have rings it really does have these little um, ears that sit out sticking out either side of it um, I would say that there's 
other things that you should look at in the sky that, that you maybe don't need a telescope for, actually. So you have a checklist of what, what to see. We've had the moon, we've had Jupiter and its moons, we've had Saturn and its rings. Um, I would say get somewhere dark, uh, dark sky, uh, away from street lights, um, look for the Milky Way. So try and see the Milky Way sort of arching across the sky, a gorgeous, gorgeous sight. Um, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then uh, obviously the Magellanic Clouds um, are another amazing thing. These nearby dwarf irregular galaxies close to our own Milky Way galaxy. Um, meteor showers, shooting stars. Um, everyone should try and spot a shooting star. If you go and look at a time of year when there's actually a meteor shower going on, then, you, then you've got a better chance of seeing a shooting star. That's basically when the Earth passes through the, the tail of a comet, or what's left over from the tail of a comet, big lump of dust orbiting the orbiting the uh, sun, and as the Earth passes through, we get um, many of the many little bits of dust that burn up in the atmosphere and cause these sh- these shooting stars to whiz across. So look out for a shooting star, but you will see them, you know, any clear night, if you spend a bit of time outside looking up at the sky, you'll probably spot the occasional one, even if it's not a meteor shower um, period. Uh, and then finally, the Andromeda Galaxy, I would say. You can see it through a telescope. It's much easier to find through a telescope. But in fact, probably the, the, the exciting thing to try to do is to spot it with, with the unaided eye without a telescope or binoculars. Um, and that's simply a matter of, um, uh, you need to get a star map. You need to get a star map like from Stellarium or something. Um, find where it is. Usually the trick t- is to work from the square of Pegasus and out through the constellation of Andromeda to sort of turn right and there you've got Andromeda. Um, so you need to sort of star hop, jump from one star to the next to find the Andromeda galaxy. Um, you can see it with your unaided eye. It's not spectacular. It's a very faint little hazy patch of light. Um, you have to know exactly where to look. You often have to, it has to be a very dark sky. Um, you have to um, sometimes use a little bit of what we call averted vision, which is you, you, you look just to the side of the galaxy and that opens up, starts to use a bit of the eye that's a bit more sensitive to, to very faint light. But you can see that little fuzzy patch, and the amazing thing about seeing that is that you know you're seeing a different galaxy. That's actually the farthest you can see with your unaided eye, generally. Um, it's about two million light years away. So not only are you looking two million light years out into space, you're looking two million years into the past. So it's just, you know, it's an amazing thing to think about doing, and I would encourage you to do that. So, uh, yeah, get out there with your kids and uh, show them these things. I'm sure they'll be, uh, they'll be amazed by it all. I should just say that uh, I apologise for my uh, rather croaky voice at the moment. I'm I, talking about having kids and so on. I suspect I've picked something up from either from my daughter who's gone back to school recently and met all the other kids who've obviously carrying all these bugs, or it's possibly our undergraduate students since they've all recently arrived back at university. So <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit ropey at the moment, sorry. So thank you, Stephen, for your question. Next question is from Daniel, and still with the moon, he says that he just got his first views of the moon, and he was so surprised. He uh, thanks us, too, for the monthly night sky segment of the Judcast, and he just noted that when he was looking at the moon, he found himself partially blinded due to the radiance of the moon. So he was curious to know if there is a safe time or way to view the moon through a telescope or any other kind of optics, presumably, so that you don't get dazzled. Yeah, so, I mean, he's right, actually. The moon is spectacularly bright through a telescope. Um, and, of course, you know, when you think about it, that's the point of a telescope. One of the, Most telescopes have got a bigger aperture. So the, the, you would look at the diameter of this sort of end of the telescope, if you like. So it's the diameter of the lens or the mirror that your telescope uses. Um, and that's can be quite large. I mean, some of the larger sort of um, 
small telescopes are something like maybe 25 centimeters in diameter mm. is quite a large um, telescope you might have at home well if you compare that to your eye your eye even when it's dilated when the pupil's dilated at its largest it's probably what five millimeters across or something maybe a little bigger you know that that that's five millimeters compared to 25 centimeters that's a factor 50 um so in terms of area which matters um because that's what the light's being collected over that's a that's squares that's the square of 50 so that's that's what 2500 mm. so you're actually getting 2500 times more light in than you would in through your pupils so it certainly appears very bright um i think i mean you're not going to be blinded by it unless you're you know the sort of size of telescopes we're talking about here um but it's certainly an issue you would you know your eyes if you're out at night your eyes have got used to the dark then your pupils opened right up you as you even as you approach an eyepiece actually i would, I would carefully approach an eyepiece that was the weather telescope that was looking at the moon you'll see the brightness sort of radiating out of it and actually what that'll do is it'll close down your pupil um and actually you'll find that a bit easier to look at the moon then um an alternative is if you don't want to ruin your dark adaptation, um, is you can get little moon filters that sort of screw into the eyepiece of your telescope. Are they just neutral density filters? Yeah, so they just they just block the light right across the spectrum. So they're just sort of chopping out some proportion of the light, and just to make the make the moon look fainter. And it means that you can sort of look at the moon, and then you can still look back up at the sky and see the stars. Otherwise, if you look at the moon through a telescope, you look back up, everything's black and like like. Um, like Daniel says, you know, you can even get the sort of, you know, patches, you know, the, the sort of after after images on your on your eye from looking at something bright. So yeah, it's not um, uh, not something to particularly worry about. I would say again, just a little pointer. Of course, if you were looking at the moon around the time of a solar eclipse, then it would be a problem, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, because of course, you're, the sun is very close by in the sky. Just don't look at the moon when it's that close to the sun. It's not a good idea. Never, ever go anywhere near the sun with a telescope or binoculars, or indeed your unaided eye. Very good. Thank you for that. Now to another Daniel, Daniel Scott Jordan. And he writes, uh, he would like to know the names of any simple reference books that will help him recognize constellations. And he also asks if there are any filters, special filters that you can get that will cut out the light pollution when observing from within a city. Okay, yeah, well, I'll tell you what we do. I think the easiest thing to do is to just put a few examples. There are, you know, there's a, there's lots, of mm -hmm. course, there's lots of books that will, that will, that will at various different levels will give you, um, an idea of what you can look out for in the sky. So I think, um, there's some that are updated every year. Um, there's some that, you know, are good reference books that are always, you know, long-standing things. Um, I think what the best thing for us to do is to put a few suggested yeah. ones on our webpage. That sounds sound like a good idea. We've been meaning to do this for some time, actually, is to put a list of books that we use for yeah. just, just basic uh, night sky observing. And the one which I used um, to, to, to learn the night sky was... Uh, Will Tyrion and uh, Ian Ridpath, Stars and Planets. Uh, yep. It's an excellent book. Uh, the maps were easy to read, and there's lots of useful information in there as well. So that's just one. And yep. um, as, as you mentioned, there's, there's lots of others. So we'll put a list of those on our website. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that they're the only ones we'd recommend either, because of course there's uh, there are many more. But we'll just we'll just we'll just stick a few on there just for pointers. Um, regarding this this business about um, filters, he's actually told me this is a problem that. Um, uh, you know, if particularly to do with light pollution, um, where, you know, if you live in a city or in a town and 
you know, the sky can be quite bright as a result of the street lights. And is there any way of blocking that? Well, there is, as you might imagine. Um, there are filters that they, they don't do a perfect job. And in fact, it would be far better if the lights just weren't there, of course. Um, but there are filters that you can get that sort of screw into the eyepiece, for example, of your, uh, of your telescope. And they would try and block patches of the spectrum, bits of the spectrum where those those street lights are likely to produce much of the pollution. For example, some of the older style street lights use sodium lamps, so there's a sort of gaseous sodium in the, inside the street lamps and they radiate very specific bits of the spectrum largely and so one could design a filter that just blocks that bit of the spectrum and, and does a bit of a better job of making this background sky a bit darker. Um, they do, you know, they, they can be pricey, however. Um, so again, we might, we might just... Uh, stick some information on about about that, uh, along with the moon filter we just mentioned as well. Our final question for this edition of Ask an Astronomer comes from Frank Sørensen, and he notes that the hype surrounding the LHC accidentally annihilating the world by creating a microscopic black hole seems to have evaporated, since we're all still here, presumably. However, he has been thinking about an argument regarding what would happen if you did have a very small black hole, which could pass through the entire planet without swallowing anything more than a few atomic nuclei, since the vast constituent of ordinary matter is actually empty space. And so Frank wonders what would happen if a cosmic ray particle collided with the upper layer of a neutron star and and created a small black hole. On a neutron star, there's no empty space for the black hole to hide in, since it is one big atomic nucleus. So the question is, why doesn't microscopic black holes created by cosmic rays swallow the neutron stars? Okay, well, complicated question. <laughs> um, but in fact, you know, it's got well, there's a couple of interesting things to pick up. I mean, this thing, the LHC is the Large Hadron Collider um, that we talked about, I think possibly in the last edition of the Ask an Astronomer section. Um, this is the big particle collider that, um, that was switched on recently at, at CERN in, uh, in Europe. Um, and uh, there was this fear that it was going to create black holes that might swallow up the Earth. It was a bit of a scur story, as we, as we actually discussed last time. And of course, you know, as, um, as Frank points out, we are still all here, presumably anyway, um, and so it didn't happen. Of course, one of the interesting things is it didn't happen because, for any, apart from anything else, they didn't actually collide any beams together when they were switching it on, so it was never going to happen <laughs> until they do that. And now the LHC is a bit broken as well, so it's mm. not going to, there's going to be a bit of a delay in all this again. However, um, the basic answer to, to this whole question, um, you can pick up on some real details if you want them by looking at the, a big safety report that was written by a number of scientists from CERN and elsewhere, looking at the safety of the collisions that are happening in the Large Hadron Collider to sort of try and answer these sorts of questions. And I think maybe um, this whole issue about whether a black hole would be produced and, and why why aren't neutron stars um, swallowed up by these black holes then since cosmic rays will be crashing into neutron stars all the time, presumably producing these black holes and therefore... You know, why aren't they swallowed up? Well, here's quoting from the LHC safety report. Uh, One might wonder what would happen if a stable microscopic black hole could be produced at the LHC. However, we reiterate that this would require a violation of some of the basic principles of quantum mechanics, a cornerstone of the laws of nature, in order for the black hole decay rate to be much less than the production rate. 
or indeed general relativity in order to suppress Hawking radiation which would cause the black holes to evaporate. So basically what they're saying is um, if one could speculate that maybe it produces macroscopic black holes, however that would require a breakdown of all the laws of physics that we think we understand at the moment. So we actually don't think they will produce black holes. But let's say they might. There's lots of other information in the safety report about various issues but let me just pick up on the issue that Frank refers to which is the issue of the black holes that might therefore be being produced when cosmic rays hit dense stars. So it says, in fact, ultra-high energy cosmic rays hitting dense stars, such as white dwarfs and neutron stars, would have produced black holes copiously during their lifetimes. I'll add the comment, if indeed black holes were being produced, and you know we didn't understand physics as we think we do. Such black holes um, would have been stopped by the material inside such dense stars, which is what Frank is saying. There's the stars are so dense that these black holes, if they're produced as the cosmic rays crashing, get trapped inside the star. Because the depth, and the, again, quoting from the LHC report, the rapid accretion due to the large density of these bodies and to the strong gravitational interactions of these black holes would have led to the destruction of the white dwarfs and neutron stars on timescales that are much shorter than their observed lifetimes. The final stages of their destruction would have released explosively large amounts of energy that would have been highly visible. The observation of white dwarfs and neutron stars that would have been destroyed in this way tells us that cosmic rays do not produce such black holes, and hence neither will the LHC. So in fact, the answer to you know Frank's point was, why don't microscopic black holes created by cosmic rays swallow the neutron stars? Well, if microscopic black holes were created by cosmic rays, they would have swallowed the neutron stars, and since they haven't, they're not being produced, which is right. actually what our normal laws of physics tell us tell us would be the case, that we shouldn't be producing those things. So it was a very satisfying answer to an excellent question. Okay. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. And if you've got any questions that you'd like Tim to answer, please do write to us at the Jodcast via the webpage. And until next time, thank you very much. So there you go, lots of Excellent questions coming in from you folk out there. If you do have any questions at all about astronomy, the latest research, what you can see in the night sky, anything at all, do please ask us those questions. Just go to www.jodcast.net and click on the Ask an Astronomer link and send us your questions. Many of you will know or have heard of what was called the Kobe spacecraft that mapped the radiation left over from the Big Bang. In fact, the observations are of what the universe was like just under 400,000 years after its origin. And the universe wasn't smooth then, it was lumpy. And the lumpiness basically gave rise to the galaxies like our own Milky Way where we live. A new spacecraft called Planck is to be launched early next year to do what Kobe did, but hopefully even better, to extend the range of detail that can be seen. And this is telling us a lot about the very earliest, oh, 10 to minus 35th of a second after the origin, a time when there was a period called the inflationary period. So we hope we'll learn an awful lot about the Big Bang and what happened afterwards. The receivers, or many of the receivers for this spacecraft, have actually been built at the Jodrell Bank Observatory, and they are some of the very, very best in the world at the range of frequencies they're going to observe at. So to learn more, Nick is going to interview Roberta Palladini. So my name is uh, Roberta Palladini. I work at IPAC uh, 
which is so the infrared <laughs> processing astronomy center. Um, IPAC is part of Caltech, and in particular, I work for the Spitzer Science Center. So Spitzer is a it's an infrared satellite. It's one of the three big satellites uh, launched by NASA. The other two are Hubble and GLAST. Mm-hmm. You specifically uh, work in infrared observations. Yeah, I work within Spitzer. I work for MIPS, um, the MIPS instrument team. MIPS is one of the three instruments on board uh, Spitzer. Mm-hmm. The other two are IRAC and uh, IRS. Um, and uh, MIPS covers the wavelengths between 24, uh, actually the wavelengths are 24, 70, 160 micron. Okay. And in particular, within the team, I work for the 70 micron in uh, the characterization of the array at it's, 70 it's, micron. It's fun to think that uh, these uh, telescopes have got separate teams working on separate parts of the wavelength spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? I mean, why, I mean, come on, it's, it's, just a, it's just a different number, isn't it? Surely, why do you have to have a whole separate team working on a different uh, wavelength band? Well, we have different teams because, first of all, the different wavelengths are, are um, covered by, so the three instruments are very different um, from the technological point of view. So you really need a different expertise. Uh, so this is why we have different teams, because one person can be specialized in uh, germanium, like I am, and somebody else can be specialized in a sic- silicon array. So this is what the CCD cameras are, are made yes, of? Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, it's so it's down to the instrumentation and the material science, basically, that you're, yeah, you're expert in? You, you basically uh, need a little bit of background uh, in, in this respect. Mm. And, uh, and so what we do within the team is really the, um, we try to, uh, let's say, study all the, uh, all the properties of the array. Now that Spitzer has been uh, in flight for five years, so we have lots of data that we can use for characterizing the, the behavior. We can also use all the data which were taken in the lab before the launch. So we, of course, also use those data. Um, but in flight, so in space, things usually are different than in the lab. And so this is why we need to do this work of characterization. How close can you get to in situ experiments in the lab? How close can you get to the telescope being in space working in the lab? Well, you get in a way quite close to the behavior. Uh, but then there are always surprises. So in a way, you roughly know uh, before the launch for example, how the sensitivity is going to be of the array, how the angular resolution is going to be. But then, for example, uh, again, for the MIPS array, uh, once the satellite was launched, um, it was found out that half of the array was dead. Half it, of the array was dead? Half, half of it is dead, and it's permanent, permanently dead. And of course, it couldn't be repaired because it was already space. Mm. So you had to live with it. And, uh, and the data actually of the other half of the array are very good. But that means basically you have to characterize something that is completely unexpected. So you have to try to understand, for example, what the impact of the dead part on the part which is actually working is. That's one of the problems. Mm. And also in terms of coverage, that means a very big problem because yes. you expect you to cover the sky <laughs> with yes. a full array and you end up having a half on the array. So there are lots of problems like, like this on, on, along the way. How can half a dead CCD array affect the good half, the living half? 
Well, one of the problem that was basically at the very beginning in 2003 when Spitzer was launched, and uh, basically after a few months, uh, even before that, the engineers realized that basically half of it was dead. And uh, the problem was a tech, um, uh, an electronic uh, connection, basically, of, the, uh, of that part of the array with the rest of the um, spacecraft. Um, so at the beginning, since it was not clear exactly which cables were involved in this process, we really needed to know well, exactly what part of the array was there and what part was, was working. Then once we realized that it was just a cable, and I say just, <laughs> <laughs> because unfortunately that means the other part of the array is fine. Mm. Uh, but basically at that stage it was clear that the part which is alive say is not affected really by the other part but at the beginning it was not uh, clear if it was something more severe uh, so you can have some uh, problems of uh, like crosstalks let's say right. things like that why could you not send astronauts to spitzer to fix spitzer in the same way that we could fix hubble uh, that's a good question <laughs> i think that well that's a very expensive that's basically the probably the answer, and NASA, uh, especially these days, uh, is very careful about uh, expenses. Uh, so whenever you can avoid doing something like that, you avoid doing it. And since, for example, it was clear that we could live without of the array, so that the mission is not lost. Uh, also, because we have other two instruments, IRAC and IRS, so. Um, it was basically clear since the beginning that the problem uh, could be solved from the ground, just basically characterizing the array. And so that avoids uh, sending uh, basically a um, space shuttle in space mm. <laughs> with astronauts, with all the costs related to the, the space Are you shuttle. mainly an instrument scientist? No. What no, else do you do? actually. <laughs> My background is completely different. So before I arrived in uh, Spitzer, I was working for uh, for Planck. So uh, so I'm a Planck scientist. I'm still uh, involved with Planck, and I was basically my work within Planck has always been the characterization of the foregrounds. Remind us a little bit about Planck first before you go on. Okay, so Planck is a um, mainly ESA, uh, so the European Space Agency uh, project by has also very big involved or involvement from from NASA. It's a satellite which is going to be launched next year uh, from uh, from the French Guiana from uh, from Kiruna. Uh, it's going to be launched by Narian. Mm-hmm. And uh, the goal of this satellite is to study the cosmic uh, cosmic microwave background, uh, which is the relic of the the Big Bang. Say, and in particular the temperature and polarization and isotropies of the CMB. So that's the main uh, goal of Planck. It's essentially the successor to WMAP. Yes. And WMAP was a successor to COBE. So exactly. it's, the, it's the next in a, a line of, of satellites studying yes. uh, the cosmic microwave Absolutely. background. Why, Absolutely. How much better is Planck going to be over WMAP? Oh, well, so the, uh, let's say the, the jump is going to be very big with Planck because we are going to have, for example, a frequency coverage much bigger. So WMAP was covering just the uh, relatively low radio frequencies, uh, so from 20 to 90 gigahertz. 
while we plunk, we are going to go all the way to 857 gigahertz. So mm-hmm. it's a very big um, jump in frequency coverage. Um, and having lots of frequency channels means that also you can keep track of the foregrounds much better, which means basically that you can uh, remove all the contaminants with respect to the CMB much better than what um, WMAP did. This is a big problem, isn't it? Because you mentioned before about your work in uh, the Spitzer, understanding the systematics of the instrumentation, working out exactly how it's performing in these uh, in in the telescope in orbit. You have to make sure that what you're measuring when it come when the, the, the numbers come off the telescope, your images, uh, you're actually measuring something real rather than just an instrument behaving slightly oddly. In this case, it's a little bit different. When you talk about foregrounds, you're talking about some real physical phenomenon hmm. in between us and the cosmic microwave background, which is this, they call it the surface of last scattering right. back after the Big Bang. You're talking about something real out there, something which is causing a foreground signal. Hmm. Explain a little bit of what you mean by a foreground signal. So a foreground signal is a signal which is emitted, as you were saying, from a, a real physical um, emitter in this case, which can be our galaxy or external galaxies. Um, and this emitter is, um, this emission, I should say, is overlapped to the emission that we want to study. So it's, um, for the cosmology, foregrounds are something like um, an emission that they want to get rid of. So they want to remove this emission, which is, um, again, overlapped, on a, on a signal which is a very tiny little signal, which is the again the emission uh, produced by the cosmic microwave background, um, which is at the level of the noise actually of the instrument. So basically, we need to dig into the data to find the kind of holy grail of cosmology, which is CMB, the temperature isotropies, and even more polarization, which is an even smaller signal. And to do that, we basically we need to remove all this uh, um, emission which is produced by our galaxy and by external galaxies. And, um, and in order to do that, we need a lot of modeling, uh, which is uh, the it's a preparatory work that we do before emission like Planck. And, uh, and then basically we, um, emission like Planck has been optimized in order to have all these big frequency coverages for coverage again to remove, uh, this emission as much as, as we can. So you start off with a model of our galaxy in, in this case. What are you modeling? Are you modeling the gas, the stars, the dark matter? What, what exactly are you putting into your, your galactic model? Basically we try to model everything at the same time. <laughs> and that's a, the Pretty tough good. goal. Because our knowledge, uh, and that in a way this is very surprising, that our knowledge of our galaxy in this frequency range is still quite poor. And that's the, um, the surprise in a way, because we, uh, as cosmologists, we can predict the emission from the CMB uh, a very, with very big accuracy, but at the same time we cannot predict it with the same accuracy the emission from our own galaxy. So that's the tough uh, challenge, in a way, because of this emission uh, from 23 gigahertz all the way to 857 gigahertz, which is the emission covered by the um, bands of Planck, is a mixture of many different physical mechanisms. So we have a synchrotron radiation, which is produced, for example, by the cosmic rays 
accelerated by the magnetic field of our galaxy. We have uh, the free-free emission, which is produced by the ionized gas of our galaxy. And then we have dust emission, which is produced by the dust in our galaxy. Uh, and then we have the so-called anomalous emission, and we call it anomalous because we don't even know what it is. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so it's also called uh, the X emission. And nowadays we know for sure that we have a fourth component, um, but we don't know what uh, what is responsible basically for this emission. We think it is like grains of dust, very small grains of dust, um, but we are not sure. Is it important to know what it is, I mean, this anomalous emission, or can you just say it's there and we can subtract it. Is that enough? Uh, yes and no. Because, <laughs> yes and no. Because in a way, for example, in an experiment like Planck, we have set up a group of uh, people, which is very big. Uh, and these people apply what, uh, what are called, uh, component separation methods. So th they take, uh, the data produced by uh, a mission like Planck. And they apply these methods, which are supposed to be blind, so they don't make um, assumptions on the components of emissions, for example, the foregrounds and the CMB, uh, and they just try to disentangle uh, the components which are in the data. So they basically say, okay, I have a map uh, A, and I know that this map A is made of a component B, C, D, and E. I don't know what these components are, and I just try to separate them out. Or there are component separation methods which make uh, some little assumptions because uh, we know that to, uh, let's say, to avoid making assumptions and to work in a completely blind way for these methods is very complicated. So this is, this is a way to go. The problem is that when you end up with these maps and you don't know what the physical mechanisms are, you don't know if what you have subtracted, let's say, what you have um, separated out and uh, distinguished from the CMB is really physical or not. Mm. It could be something spurious. And if you don't know, if you don't have any physical ground, you can really end up with something totally fake. <laughs> or it could be noise, and you basically have no idea. So this is why you really need some knowledge. And, uh, and this is what we are doing a little bit at the moment. <laughs> One question which might be a bit naive, although we are, uh, the sun is going around the centre of the galaxy in the plane of the galaxy, in the disk of the galaxy, so we are part of the, the galactic disk, are there directions which we can point to Planck which are going to be less affected by the galaxy than others? So that's a very good question. So with Planck, like WMAP or COBE, these are full sky experiments. So they cover they cover the entire sky, including the galaxy. Um, what uh, the they uh, say after uh, acquiring the data, what we are going to do to really study the CMB, so the cosmic microwave background, um, is in general uh, we mask the galaxy. That's the first thing we do. Just blank it out. Yeah. Because at the end, recovering the CMB is a statistical, mm. uh, the CMB is a static, statistical signal. So you just want to make sure that you don't um, mask a, a too big region in the sky. Otherwise, you end up with too little statistics, and that's a problem for what, what we call um, uh, map making methods. And map making are these methods which recover a, a map of the CMB and also 
after that to recover the cosmological parameters that this is what we want. So uh, we need to make sure that we don't mask too much. But that's usually the first approach. You don't look for the CMB in the plane of the galaxy because that would be a lost battle, basically, because the foregrounds are going to win. <laughs> yes. We don't know the foregrounds, the level of um, subtracting them out so well that we managed to recover the CMB in the galaxy. So we are obliged to do this. So once again, unfortunately, we do need to know some, some of the physics of these foregrounds. And we are not at this stage yet. We are not good enough <laughs> to do that. Um, so that's one step, uh, blanking basically the galaxy. But at the same time, these experiments um, uh, have as a goal also to recover maps of the foregrounds. Because in fact, a, um, at the same time, we also want to improve our knowledge of these foregrounds for the future experiments. You just don't want to say, oh, it's just an annoying signal, let's get rid of it and get to the good bit, exactly. which is a CMB. Exactly. It's, it's interesting in yeah. itself, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because cosmologists, in, in these big experiments, there are cosmologists and people who are interested actually in these emissions, like myself. <laughs> I belong to the second category. So, so it's a, it's a com complex game in which some people, uh, see these emissions like trash in a way. Mm -hmm. They want to get rid of it. But the other people, they say, no, this is important. And again, it is important also for cosmology because the better we know these foregrounds, the better we will be able to recover the CMB in the future. Mm. Polarization. Now, Planck isn't flying at the moment, so you're obviously not getting the data from Planck to model the foregrounds. Where are you getting the information from to model the, the foreground signal? So we basically get the information from all the previous experiments, uh, including WBAM, MAP. And, uh, and Kobe and uh, but WMAP in this respect is basically the best uh, source uh, of information, but also from lots of other ancillary data. So, uh, for example, for the synchrotron M33, there are uh, experiments, uh, observations which are done specifically aiming at the observation of the synchrotron and the free free. So, uh, for example, for synchrotron, we go to very low frequencies like uh, Haslam. The Haslam map, which is, uh, was done by the Jotterbank Observatory, actually. <laughs> and uh, Haslam is a map of uh, 408 megahertz. And uh, the idea is really to uh, look uh, in the frequency range in which you know that a specific emission from the galaxy is going to dominate. So you don't have to worry about the other components. You can look at one specific component, but you have to go to very specific uh, frequency, in this case 408 What's megahertz. special about 408 megahertz? 408 megahertz uh, is, uh, let's say, is low enough that, uh, again, uh, free free um, doesn't really um, kick in let's say. Um, so the synchrotron is, is, is very high because this case is a power law and uh, so at 48 megahertz uh, it, it really dominates. And then also at, in, in terms of technology uh, it is let's say a relatively easy frequency to observe because then we have also to come to terms with technology we can observe at any given frequency uh, because like filters are um, optimized in specific ranges, so that's the other part of the problem. So on one side, as um, say theoreticians, we would like to observe at some given frequencies, but uh, on the other side, um, we have to compromise with what the technology can, can offer. 
When will you be satisfied that you have modeled the foregrounds accurately enough that you can say to the people who are interested in the cosmic microwave background, here you go, this is the signal that we expect to be due to these foreground physical processes, the rest is the CMB. At what point do you say, we've done it, we've modeled it correctly? Hmm. Uh, this is a very big question because I think there is a, such a long way to go with the foregrounds. Uh, the problem of the foregrounds is that nowadays uh, an experiment like Planck, for example, is capable of observing the CMB at a resolution of 5 arc minutes. We don't have uh, templates, so models of the foregrounds at 5 arc minute resolution. So, for example, for the synchrotron that I was mentioning before, our best template, the Haslam template, is almost at 1 degree. So we can see the gap between one degree and five arc minutes. Mm -hmm. And in between, we don't know, we have basically to scale down with models because we don't have the data. So that's one of the problems. The other problem I was mentioning is the anomalous emission. We don't know even what it is. It was found, uh, it was discovered uh, a bit more than 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But then uh, it took almost 10 years to convince people that it was really there because people didn't believe it. Um, so for anomalous emission, still we need to do everything. The other problem is the polarization, because all these experiments, all the future experiments of CMB, not only want to look at the temperature anisotropies, but they want to look at polarization of the CMB. That's really the holy grail of cosmology, because looking at polarization, we can even more um, break the degeneracy between all the cosmological models. And that's the only way we can really do it. The problem is uh, that we basically need uh, the information in polarization for all the foregrounds. And at the moment, we basically don't have any kind of information. So we know that synchrotron is polarized. We know that free free is basically not polarized. We know that dust is polarized. But we basically don't know how. We don't know. We don't have maps. Hmm. And uh, so it's going to take a very long time, I think, because be before we, we will manage to fill up all these gaps. So you mentioned that in order to discriminate between competing cosmological models for uh, the observed temperature anisotropies in the CMB, we now look towards polarization. The polarization itself is just simply the angle of polarization looking in different directions in the sky? Yes. Yeah, it, it's a very, the concept that for CMB is basically exactly what applies to any other um, light, let's say also visible light. So we basically think that the, uh, there was an imprint in, uh, in the photons of CMB at the surface of last scattering. So they basically got polarized uh, on the surface and uh, this polarization keeps the track of basically of this um, surface of last scattering. So it can really tell us, for example, uh, if we know that there is uh, a signal which is due to gravitational waves. So, and uh, this signal can be basically seen in polarization. And that's the way basically we can say, okay, we see a polarized signal in the CMB. So we know that there are basically um, perturbations in the primordial universe which are due to uh, gravitational waves, and uh, and that's basically the only way to see it. Otherwise, we we have no way to directly see it. The mm. only way is, is through polarization of the CMB, 
And uh, this is why polarization is going to open up a complete uh, new uh, perspective on the CMB and on the primordial universe um, itself. It's remarkable to think that we've gone from just looking at the, uh, the CMB and in the first observations it looked completely flat. It looked just like a black body and there was no... None of these little wiggles anywhere. In, mm. in whatever direction you looked at it, it looked completely flat, just like a, a black body. And then when Kobe flew and they did their analysis and they could discover these little temperature fluctuations of... What's what's the order of the, the, the temperature fluctuations? Temperature minus five. Tiny, uh, tiny Kobe. fluctuations. Yes. Yeah. And how much harder is it to detect the polarization signal than the temperature signal now? Yeah. So polarization is the... Uh, the real challenge, because nowadays, basically all the experiments uh, for detecting temperature and isotropies, uh, all the experiments are basically in quite a good shape. Polarization is um, a very different business in a way, because polarization is 10%, represents 10% of the um, fluctuations in temperature. So if we have a signal of 10 to the minus 5 Kelvin, in polarization it's going to be 10 to the minus 6. Hmm. So it's going to be a very tiny little signal. And uh, the problem is really the foregrounds. I go back to the foregrounds because for polarization, since we are basically so ignorant in the, the way the uh, foregrounds are polarized, um, the challenge is really to distinguish a signal that is so tiny from something that is so dominant and so unknown. So are we going to be able to do this? That's a big t- challenge. In, in a way, nobody knows. Uh, we uh, we think we can because, again, an experiment as Planck has been designed to have a sufficient frequency coverage to disentangle all these uh, components, uh, even if we don't really know how they behave. Uh, but we can basically exploit all the knowledge we have in terms of frequency dependencies of the foregrounds and, uh, um, and, and anyway, all the physics that we know uh, that um, these foregrounds uh, follow uh, to, uh, to, to make this separation. Hmm. But I think just the Planck data will answer this question. And so hopefully we will manage to detect the polarization. Will Planck be the first instrument to measure the CMB polarization? Uh, on a, well, on a full sky level, yes, definitely. The WMAP did produce polarized, uh, maps. Uh, but again, the, the problem was that WMAP was not, uh, sufficiently, um, first of all, was less sensitive than Planck. So when an instrument is less sensitive, it means the noise, uh, dominates, uh, over a signal which is so tiny, like, for example, the polarization that you want to, to measure. So Planck is much more sensitive, so it should go down to a level of, uh, um, let's say, of signal-to-noise, which WMAP couldn't achieve. That was one um, uh, one thing. Uh, other experiments have ex- uh, have observed the, uh, the CMB. The CBI is one of these experiments, which is a cosmic background imager. Uh, in Caltech, actually. Uh, there are other experiments like uh, DAISY. It's an interferometer at the South Pole. Uh, now there is a balloon, which is going to be launched the next year, which is called Polar Bear. So there are lots of, <laughs> lots of experiments. Um, the problem of all these experiments is usually um, that, again, they don't have a full sky coverage, so statistically they have a much less amount of data 
uh, to to study. Uh, the other problem is they don't reach again the frequency coverage of Planck. That's always a big problem when you want to disentangle the foregrounds. Uh, so again, um, I don't want to advertise here Planck, but Planck is going to be basically the the first experiment mm. which may really give. Um, not a definite answer, uh, of course, but at least um, uh, a robust, probably a robust detection. So the data from these other experiments you mentioned are not sufficient to help you out with the problem of this anomalous signal, this mm. anomalous polarization signal, so you can't even get a handle on mm. where to start with the, the models to see whether any of them agree with the current data. So you're really hoping that the data that come from Planck will be in themselves enough to give you the CMB and also this anomalous signal, or the foregrounds anyway. Yes, well, um, in fact, so we because we have two problems. One is the polarization of the CMB that I mentioned, and the other one is the anomalous emission for the foregrounds. And uh, in a way, Planck could be the experiment answering um, these two questions, because on one side it will be the first experiment to produce a full-sky map of the anomalous emission, which is the emission of the galaxy. It's one of the components of the uh, galactic emission. And on the other side, it could be the first experiment giving um, a detection of the uh, polarization on a full sky and probably detected in uh, the cleanest way uh, so far. Mm. So could answer both these questions, which would be good. <laughs> Very exciting. We're looking forward to looking forward to hearing the results. Oh yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed for your time. And thank yeah. you for, for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. So interesting stuff there from Roberta, and we look forward, of course, to the results from Planck when it flies. So that's all for this issue of the Jodcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Again, if you've got any comments or feedback or questions, please go to www.jodcast.net and ask them. And so it just remains for me to say thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.